Should the church be made up of patriots or pacifists? How does the gospel teach us to relate to the nation and world around us? And when we apply the biblical worldview, we have to know when and how we should be confrontational. Today, we're going to be discussing the screw tape letters on how we might better understand the biblical worldview as we navigate the world around us. America is in a moment where she needs revival. We're in the middle of a culture war and we need to be critical thinkers. We're going to also discuss how our feelings, emotions, and even our desires can be used to distract us and take us to a place where we feel nothing. And in our final segment today, we're going to play buy, sell, a hold with Bible stories that would make for interesting horror movies. And let me go ahead and say I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> but thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by Clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor, and there are two others here with me in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And before we jump into our more serious conversations, I am really excited about how we're wrapping this program up. <laughs> uh, Bible stories that can make for interesting horror movies, because we're going to come at this with an interesting uh, angle. So I don't know how y'all are feeling about that. I, I'm excited about it. I like horror movies, and um, I think actually kind of discussing some interesting takes, both on the biblical narrative, but also how we could make better movies uh, will be quite fascinating. Yeah, and I know a lot of people at first they'll be like, oh, horror movies are all bad, they glorify evil. Not, not, that's not necessarily the case. Horror movies can be used to, to really touch on some of the very serious, very real evils, and also eliminate how the biblical worldview interacts with really dark stuff. I know you were talking about how we really need to have movies that are really good at showing the biblical worldview, not just preaching it really crudely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the whole writing mantra, um, show don't tell, which is something that's applied to all almost a, a lot of the written word and also within movies, um, just seems we've seemed to have forgotten that in a lot of Christian films. So. Yeah. So that's what we'll be looking at at the end. But for our opening segment today, we are getting on this topic of patriots or pacifists, because this is something which really is a, a bit of a question that people wonder. They say, well, we're called to apply the biblical worldview, obviously. Well, how do we do that? How and when should we be confrontational? So we're going to be talking about this, and it's very important to understand as it comes to applying the biblical worldview in the world around us and also really navigating the moment in which we're in and making good on the talents which God has entrusted to us to bring revival to America. And last week, we talked about the great folly when we take the frustration that we have against political and big picture, and I say that with quotes, issues, which are largely wrapped up with people we've never met, and we take that frustration we have on those areas and we apply that to the people that are in our immediate surroundings. You know, this is the peril of allowing Thanksgiving dinner to be ruined by political fairs instead of actually enjoying the rare moments you have with your family and neighbors. Today, we're picking up on this and we're going to be reading from the screw tape letters, which are written by C.S. Lewis. Now, the screw tape letters, they are a bit of a parody satirical writing, but they're very good at, at bringing out theology because they are written from the perspective of hell. They're written from Uncle Screwtape, who is a demon, devil in hell, whatever you want to call him, but he's, his job is to tempt and to teach his uh, nephew, I almost said his cousin, but his nephew, uh, Wormwood, on how to better tempt. So let me read this excerpt from the screw tape letters regarding patriotism and pacifism, and then I'll share just a few more thoughts and then let Pastor Amanda and Pastor Mike respond. So, Screwtape, writes, My dear Wormwood, I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether or not we should make the patient, the one we are trying to tempt and bring into hell, an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, who is God, are to be encouraged. Now, this is not always the case, but it is at this period. You see, some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and 
in those times it is our business to soothe people yet faster to sleep. And in other ages, of which the present is one, they are unbalanced and prone to faction. And in those times it is our business to inflame them. Now, whichever your patient atops, whether it be patriotism or pacifism, your main task is going to be the same. Let him begin by treating his patriotism or his pacifism as part of his religion. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause. Now, in this case, Christianity will be valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments that can be produced in favor of patriotism or the great arguments it can make in favor of pacifism. The attitude, of course, you want to guard against is in which the temporal affairs, those affairs of the moment, are treated primarily as material for obedience. You do not want him to look at the moments in which he lives as an opportunity to obey the enemy who is God. And once you have made the world an end, and faith merely a means to this end, you almost have won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, whether it be patriotism or pacifism. And that is, provided that all the meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades, they matter far more to him than do his prayers, than do the sacraments, than do charity. And the more he religiously, and on those terms of religiousness, looks at patriotism and pacifism, the more he is securely ours. I can show you a pretty cage full of people down here exactly like that. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. All right, so I've actually talked about this quite a bit on a few other programs that I've put out on my Nazarene Stream Preacher channel, but I do want to put one thing out there posited, and Amanda's laughing Did at that. Did you say Stream Preacher or Scream Preacher? You see, it's a play on Scream Preacher, okay. but it is Stream because <laughs> I stream video games while I preach. Ah, uh, that is fantastic and clever. I like it. <laughs> um, so, yes, the Nazarene Stream Preacher, which I've become a little bit of a, a Scream Preacher as of late, but. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Okay, so one thing that I want to just make sure that I, I clarify on the front end of this is just to kind of give this conversation some direction. One of the big topics that we've talked about a lot here at Kingdom of the Lagos is the difference between the primary expression and the medium. Again, you look at something like the statue of David, David's whole body is figure, that is the primary expression. You're looking at David, this monument to this biblical hero. Now, the medium for that is the stone and all the things used to make a statue. You can look at a, a situation where Jesus heals somebody. He might reach out and touch someone or take mud and put it in their eyes. You know, his touching is the medium, but the primary expression is the healing, those salvific things that he is doing for people. That's the primary expression. That healing and transformation is really the primary expression. Pacifism and patriotism, they are mediums with which Christian virtue can be used, so long as the patriotism and pacifism do not become the final goal. Kind of what screw tape talks about here. Patriotism and pacifism, they can be used for, for goods. And just to give an example of this, patriotism can be a means for making good on the talents which God has entrusted you. In other words, you're born in a certain time, in a certain place. Those have been things trusted to you, your neighbors, and you're going to make good on your place of birth in your local neighborhood. Patriotism is an opportunity for that. Um, when it's, again, you're doing this in service to God and it's an extension of that. And on the other side of this conversation, pacifism can be a means for meekness which is not weakness or something like that, but it's the discipline strength where you're using your power, your authority for the common good and not just for self-indulgence. So pacifism can be used for that meekness and patriotism can be good to make good on those talents which have been entrusted to you in your natural place of birth and neighborhood.
All right, so that's Screwtape's comment on that, and I'm just going to let y'all respond to this. This bait and switch where you get people to look at Christianity really as a means to other ends and all the forms of worldliness which come in. So I don't know who would like to respond to that first. Well, you know, for me, I think I, I, I lean very much into the patriotism side, and so I— um, I think it's so easy for me to see that because there's there's a slippery slope of all of a sudden you know we're we're called to be a godly nation so uh, I you know I'm not only if I'm a patriot I, I but all of a sudden I think there's a fine line when patriotism itself becomes the god yeah. to be to to be worshiping uh, a a country rather than God and God alone. At the same time, I can see that same element when you, you're called to be be a Christ-like and humble, uh, not to to be a part of violence. Uh, so this whole pacifism, you know, direction uh, to where all of a sudden you can start worshiping that idea rather than God as well. And, uh, you know, this, I think uh, C.S. Lewis is right on with this uh, writing because, uh, like I said, I, I do. I, I lean heavily towards the patriotism side, and I have to keep myself in check. Uh, but but I see exactly where he's going with it. Yeah, um, and you know, we might have some interesting kind of debate on this sort of stuff today, some different ideas. And we may even... I, I hate to say play devil's advocate. Um, we might play a little bit of screw tapes advocate on some of this just for the exercise of critical thinking. But, man, I'll let you kind of step in on this. Well, and I think what I appreciate about C.S. Uh, Lewis's um, cleverness in this article or in this particular letter out of his whole book is he not so much picks a side, which you're thinking he's writing this, um, I believe, either during or towards the end or after World War II. And if there was ever a time where... Patriotism fell into nationalism, and some very horrific things were happening. I mean, that that's the time for that. Yeah. Um, you have people who are are f- blindly following charismatic leaders simply because, like, they're going to make their country. Uh, well, they're going to make them a, again. They're going to yeah. yeah. They're they're bringing mm-hmm. them out of the depression. They're bringing them out of the really still the troubles that were caused uh, after World War One. And so there's all these dynamics happening, which again we can see our current situation and all of that. And C.S. Lewis just goes, listen, like people are going to extremes. And this yeah. is, this is the cleverness of our time is, and also playing back to what we talked about last week. If you can get them arguing over these things, if you can get division to be created in these things, then neither side really wins the Patriot yeah. or the pacifist. It's all about anger and aggression to where nobody actually is providing in, in like the, I think he says, get them to do anything, but actually be obedient. Because if you if they're actually obedient in their pacifism, or if they're actually obedient to God in their patriotism, whichever thing that they're enacting, if they're actually obedient to God, then actual change will happen. Yeah. And so th- there's this thing where, um, you know, we see this again in, in our current time and our current situation where there is a lot of passion, and and I try to give people a lot of grace in in those situations where. You know, honestly, I think they feel like whether patriot or pacifist or whatever kind of two dynamics we want to label them with, they're really trying to figure out how what it means for for them to enact or to participate in the kingdom of heaven here on earth in their current situation. But sometimes we get so bogged down by this idea of what does it mean to be, you know, love our neighbor? And what does it mean to love God with all of our mind, soul, and strength? Where we get so focused on what does it mean that we forget the loving part. And, and so... 
I think it's just really, I think C.S. Lewis did himself a great service by not saying this is the one or like this is the better one out of the two, but simply saying let's look at this and see where these roads can take us. And again, the ultimate goal, like you're saying, the primary expression is not patriotism or pacifism. The ultimate goal is how are we obedient to God? Yeah, I think that's really one of the most clever lines that's in there is he says, if you can get them to do anything but think their current moment is an opportunity for obedience. Mm-hmm. And and what is so brilliant about this is C.S. Lewis, he kind of understood that it was easier to, to really illuminate theology from taking that that stance of hell more so than the stance of heaven mm-hmm. uh and he i think he was challenged to kind of write something from like an angel's perspective i know we talked about this and he was kind of a un, little uneasy and, and rationally so from that where you can write things from the perspective of hell to really hit the pinpoint on a lot of this stuff because it's so much easier to fall into a pitfall than it is to actually be obedient. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes in life, we are looking at the world around us as means to various ends. And you see people do this with the Christian faith all the time, rather than saying, well, how can I actually be obedient and make good on the gospel right now? And one of the things that you mentioned earlier was how people get very passionate in both ways. Uh, one of the, the big problems that happens with both of these is if you get over passionate in your pacifism, you can just sit on your hands and watch, you know, terribly wicked stuff go on. In the parable of the talents, which is very important when you understand God's judgment, uh, it's not good to sit on your hands and say, well, you know, I didn't destroy the talent you gave me, but also if you don't do anything with it, there's pretty bad. I think if, and I've got some scriptures that we'll read here in a moment, but to the question of passion, that's going to come up in our second segment today. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be back to that. But when it comes to looking at how the New Testament actually unfolds, God is the most merciful and severe thing we could ever imagine. There is mercy and there is judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to be hard-pressed to make a biblical argument that is exclusively one way or another. But I think you're also going to be hard-pressed to make an argument that says to totally reject both of them. I I think God clearly says make good on the talents where you have. Love the people that are in your immediate circumstances. You know, Screwtape also writes one of the great tricks you can get people to do is to really reject the actual people they have around him. If he's a British uh, man, having not care about the British soldiers that are next to him and having be so wrapped up with the Germans and how he might hate the Germans, but maybe if I find a German pilot who's injured, I'll give him a cigarette and a cup of tea. You're so focused on how you would actually interact with the Germans that you're a total jerk to the actual uh, people you have around you, your own family. And you, you kind of forget to bring that down locally. Uh, Pastor Mike? You know, I think uh, one of the things that uh, the enemy, and when I say the enemy, I'm not talking, I'm talking directly about uh, the devil and demons and, you know, that uh, all of that uh, evil that is out there. It wants us to not worship God. Yeah. And so, you know, I think whether you're, you know, as you said, sitting on your hands, you're you know, you know, inactive on one way or the other. They that's that's good. Leave them there is what what the enemy's trying to say to us. Screw tape is saying there. But for those who are passionate, um, you know, I think Pastor Amanda hit it really, really on the nail. Especially if on the patriot side, as we see that even in the first century, where Israel was ready to be uh, another powerful nation that they had been, um, you know, uh, subversive to Rome and. Uh, to all of those other nations, they'd been in exile, and the, even though they were back, things were not where they wanted. If they were so patriotic. They wanted to see Israel, in a worldly sense, a, a tremendous nation again, a great nation. Whereas 
you know, they had lost focus on worshiping God for many yeah. of them. And, uh, you know, I think that's always uh, so if 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 we are spending our energy not worshiping God, then evil is happy. And that's what's yep. going on. here. And, and yeah, evil is happy regardless which path you take. But that being said, there is an appropriate role for both of these. We've talked a lot about mm-hmm. passion. So let's go ahead and wrap up this first segment and get to the second mm-hmm. one. But I have a scripture I want to share with you. In the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, it says, As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons, and you receive without payment and you give without payment. Now, the reason why I think this scripture is so relevant to this is because it is filled with with conflict. And the question about patriotism versus conflict or versus pacifism is the question of when and where should I enact conflict and how? You're going to be hard-pressed to say that Jesus does not enact conflict. In the New Testament, he gets in conflict with people verbally quite often, and hey, the 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 work on the cross was the ultimate conflict between life and death. So there's obviously a lot of conflict. And even later in chapter 10, he says, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But at the same time, that is coupled with a mercy that is beyond anything you could ever imagine to give people that says, look, I will fully cleanse everything you have ever done wrong. You can receive salvation. I am giving this huge investment in you. You are all sick, little miserable rats, (laughs) but I have come to invest in you and I know I'm going all John Edwards, sinners in the hang, hands of an angry God. You're all miserable rats, but I have come to invest in you that you can return to me as righteous, adopted sons and daughters who are restored and can live noble lives. I have come to you to give you this purchase. Um, you can freely receive it. I have made this huge investment in you. And there's this push and pull that says you cleanse the leopards. Those who are the least in society, you do what you can to heal them. I am giving you the authority and power to do it. But also cast out the de- the demons. Like go out there and, and rebuke evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a balance to be had between these two. Uh, Pastor Mike, I'll let you have the final thoughts on this segment, and then we're going to come back to talk about the role of feelings and pleasure because they tie into this. Yeah, you know, I think in the Old Testament we see these three main voices of the the priest, the prophet, and what we call the king or the sage, and and perhaps the the uh, priestly element be more of a uh, a a patriotic voice. Uh, I would kind of lean to, and then then the prophetic voice, maybe that being a little more of uh, uh, you know the 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 pacifist type where uh you know great mercy is uh, being uh exercised but at the end of the day i think it is that 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 bringing of all of those voices together that kingly sage voice the voice of wisdom to know how to apply each one in every situation and so uh, with that being said we must turn to god and ask for that that godly wisdom all right well, we will be back here in a moment. And we're getting the audio controller over here. Crazy stuff happens. Anyways, we're going to be back in a moment to talk about how pleasure and feelings, they come in and they really keep us from revival. So we'll be back to talk about that in a second. Thank you for spending time with us here at Kingdom of the Logos. Right. As we come back together, we're going to be talking about another article in the Screwtape Letters where Uncle Screwtape, from his voice there in the darkness, he comes to manipulate people on the matter of pleasure. And yeah, this goes in kind of the direction that you might expect it to, but it's actually a pretty meaningful 
a conversation to have about how we think with the world and how we navigate. One of the great persuasions people have in the modern day and age is that something is only true if I feel as if it is true. You know, if I feel like I have had good intentions there, I feel like I've been sufficiently good regardless of what the outcomes are, regardless of what the fruits are. And a lot of times when people focus on their feelings and their intentions, they have no real need to course correct because they're not focusing on their motivations and their, their ultimate goals, which are issued to us by God, not by ourselves. So Screwtape, he realizes one of the ways that you can render people to be effectively useless, where they're just so idle they don't do anything that matters, is by the manipulation of pleasure. But this conversation, while it does obviously include some sexual things with it, it actually doesn't start or end where you might expect. So let's jump right into this and see what he has on the question of pleasure. So he says, My dear Wormwood, I know that we have won a mini soul over to hell through pleasure. But at the same time, we have to remember that pleasure is his invention. That's an invention of God, not ours. The enemy God, he made all the pleasures. And all of our research down in hell so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced, that they can take pleasures at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure and to take people to a place in which it is the least natural, the least redolent of its maker, and therefore the least pleasurable. What we want is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That is the formula. It is far more certain and it's better style. To get to a man's soul, to give him nothing in return, to have the man give away his soul for absolutely nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's heart. So what you see Screwtape saying there, he says it's good style, it's in good taste of hell <laughs> to have people crave ever, you know, meaningless pleasures, to, to crave that more and more, to just really have this exercise that we all we want to do is have pleasure, but have it be just diminishing. And ultimately to get people to throw away their whole life for absolutely nothing in return. And furthermore, as the book, The Letters Unfold, Screwtapes, he kind of returns back to this concept on feelings and pleasure. And he says that you can get people to really do nothing in life if you can separate all pleasures and emotions from their true purpose as designed by God. And the more you do this, the more you make people useless. You know, you were talking earlier about how people get passionate about causes. Well, Screwtape addresses that too. He doesn't miss anything. Screwtape, he's <laughs> got all of his uh, avenues covered. He says, Whenever you've got people passionate about stuff, he says, the great thing to do is to prevent him from doing anything. As long as he does not convert his passion or his repentance into action, it really doesn't matter how much he thinks about it. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bend in that way, let him write a book about it. Let him proclaim it on the rooftops, his passions <laughs> and pleasures. You see, that is an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds with which the enemy has planted in a human soul. Let him do anything. Let him announce it, but let him do anything but act. The more he feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever act. And in the long run, the less he will ever be able to feel. Mm. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. All right, so I'll let y'all just respond to that. It's really clever stuff here. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I like, again, um, this kind of idea. And if you've ever read Screwtape's, letter, uh, Screwtape's letters, um, 
it does take a while to read them because you have to kind of continually remind yourself you're reading this kind of in the enemy's voice or you know so when they refer to the enemy they're actually referring to god and when they refer to their father they're actually referring to satan and, and there's some weird things but in the midst of all these juxtapositions uh you're really stretched which is why I think, one, it's funny where he says, let him write a book, but not do action, which is hilarious for an author to be writing. Yeah. Um, but again, C.S. Lewis is clever enough a little bit maybe to call out the intellectual elite of his day, which he would have been a part of. You know, him and J.R.R. Tolkien are, were professors that worked together. They would be considered in their day and in our time the intellectually elite. And yet they're able to kind of call out their own little kind of demographic to be like, listen, um, God forbid we do all of this academic stuff and never actually turn it into action that impacts people. But sorry to get back kind of like, and this is like the cleverness of fiction, I believe, and also the cleverness of both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien is they are able to write such great theological works and yet in the midst of it, in the midst of characters and worlds uh, that are completely made up. And it, it prompts us, I think, to think better than maybe an explicit theological work does. Because all of a sudden we're like, well, wait, the demon is saying that we should do this. And this is actually what we have been doing. This isn't a good thing if the yeah. demon's okay with it. Um, and yeah, and, and there is, and I also like that you can play on feelings to an extent where you actually don't feel. Yep. If feelings are your end, then you will basically kind of get what you're asking for. It's this overwhelming sense of feelings will eventually leave you feeling less and um it's it just it's and i think again especially in our time and age and, and this is written uh, i think i looked it up 1942 so we're at like the 80 almost 80 year mark for the for this book so almost a century later and things have probably gotten worse not better uh if anything they've stayed exactly the same although some of the situations and the people in the countries involved may have changed a little bit the the basic sin principle has remained the same but we do see this and especially with social media and able to like hear around the world these ideas of passionate projects and and uh getting behind different movements which have definitely their place and are needed um and we need to act and, and to respond to the great oppressions of our world but sometimes it's just so easy to kind of like be a part of them without actually being a part of them and calling to action. And um, I think this is, it is something, we all want to be some a part of something bigger. And I think that's really where Screwtape is addressing, is his victim or client or patient or whatever they're calling him wants to be a part of something bigger. But sometimes we come to those things and we just want it to fill the gap in our own lives we're actually not participating in the kingdom of heaven and fulfilling that redemption and reconciliation within ourselves and also our world. Yeah, and just my thoughts on that. There's a lot of people who want to be someone as opposed to do something. Mm -hmm. And this really is where the, the concept of obedience come in. You see, there's more to life than what's immediately in front of us. And Screwtape, he, he writes about this all the time. If you can get the humans to think about their immediate sensations, what's right before their eyes, if you can convince them that that is what is real, not their souls, not their actions, not their sins, not their virtues, but just, you know, the bus boy outside and the, the advertisement in the newspaper, that is all of life. That's real. You know, who, you know, that God stuff, you know, that's not real. But to get them to think about small things and when doing that, 
you can get them to have this desire to be meaningful in that area where they, they feel like they need to satisfy all these things in the outer circumference of life. You know, I'm dealing with, with climate change, saving the polar bears, but yet when I was on my way to church, there was the, the man on the side of the road and the Levite, the priest, you know, they're caring about the big picture item. They're in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. They, they're actually trying probably, if you, you actually read that, a priest Levite, they're probably serving some larger duty. They're doing the big picture, but they've done that so much that they have totally missed what's actually in front of their eyes. They're, they're wanting to make good on a talent which they don't have. They're to use the parable of the talents. In other words, yeah, God, yeah, you gave me this one talent, but I wanted those five talents. I wanted people to know if I had five talents, this is how I would change the world. And you gave me this measly one talent and I buried it in the ground because I didn't want to deal with that. And that is, C.S. Lewis is writing about that, how you can sterilize this, the seeds for doing anything meaningful is to get them to write books, to virtue signals, we call it in the modern day and age, do anything but act. Uh, it's fascinating. It's a really fascinating, really clever thing. Um, Pastor Mike, Going over to you, uh, do you have any initial thoughts? I have a question I want to ask towards you. I, I do. I think, you know, it's been a previous episode when we talked about, you know, what, what superhero we would want and, and how <laughs> they would use that. But in, in this context, Lewis does such a great job here because evil is always lying and manipulating. But in this particular case, it, it's, it's obvious that the lasso of truth <laughs> is around screw tape because it, it, it is written to his nephew. And so he's not trying to manipulate him, but, it, uh, but he's teaching him how to manipulate the, the uh, what does he call them, patients? And, yeah, the patients. Uh, the patients. Uh, but so as we see this, it is obvious that he, he says, you know, I, I love how the truth is, is laid out there that God created pleasure. And yet, we want to take that pleasure and bring it into wrong relationship, whereas God created it to enhance and create good relationships. And, you know, this is a beautiful statement that, that God created the pleasures. What they want to do is not only see broken relationship, but to see an individual miserable. And so if you can have lust in your heart, but not act upon that, yeah. It's even better because he, he gets nothing for that. He just It's just total misery and broken relationship at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, one I think the funniest things in the screw tape letters is there's a man who makes it to hell. And when he arrives at hell, he says, you know, I got here doing neither what I ought or what I wanted. Like, I, I didn't serve God, but I also didn't go out and, you know, just live, live it up pleasurably. Life, yeah. I didn't live a hedonistic life either. I was miserable all the time, and I'm still in hell. Um but to the point that you made, that was the question I was going to ask you, and I'm going to reset that here in a second. But, you know, in, in the book of Genesis, there's the, the great line that says, what you meant for evil, God has taken for good. The demons in hell basically do the inverted form of that mm, in absolutely. this book. They, they make the statement, and I want to really reset this and let you talk about this for a second, Pastor Mike. He says, in our research in hell, we have not been able to produce one pleasure. We always think about like Satan's trick is that he comes and puts pleasures in your mind or something like that. <laughs> but screw tape says, you know, our, our trick isn't that we can create pleasures because we put all of our energy and research into it. And hell, we can't make one. We can't do anything that's actually fun. However, <laughs> what we can do is we can take the pleasures which God has designed, you know, whether it be things which are hormonal, whether it be something which is driven by different things that go on in the brain, we take them and we have people indulge in those pleasures at times, in ways, in degrees in which he has forbidden. What do you think about that angle where they take things that God meant for 
for a specific purpose throughout the course of life, and they take and they just want to twist it. What do you think about that, rather than them actually inventing the desires? Yeah, absolutely. So you have God with the primary expression, and and obviously we are God's people. We are somewhat flesh and blood, the medium. And so what he wants to do is not only, you know, the enemy wants to pervert the medium into taking the whole, you know, a primary expression and pleasure that God has designed and pervert that in a way that breaks relationship, that destroys others, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it keeps us from worshiping God and, and moving uh, to what we were designed, our purpose, and, and uh, how God created us in His image. Amanda, we're going to close out this thing, but I want you to respond to this other point that's in here. Okay. He says, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain, and it's better style. What do you <laughs> think about this, that Hale describes it as stylish? This is a good style temptation when you can have people wanting to throw away their life and give him nothing in, in return. return. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, when I first read this um or when we were rereading it uh, earlier today, I wrote that song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Like, at least that guy got, like, he was risking something. I get your soul or you get this uh, fiddle of gold. Like, there, there was an exchange happening. And I think often we think that that's how evil works, right? We give up our soul for the momentary pleasure. We give up, you know, right relatedness with God for, for something. And really what we find in here, again, the cleverness is, is when we give up our soul to the darkness, uh, to the diabolical one, to the, um, you know, the accuser. We really aren't getting anything in return. Yeah. And this this is the genius. And again, the style, that is a fun word. Like this is, it's not just good, it's stylish. Like it's cool. Um, <laughs> I just really like that language that C.S. Lewis picked. But yeah, it is that this is, the way to do this is to so confound us that we are willing to give up life and life everlasting, life abundant, not just in the next life, but in this current life, abundant life for absolutely nothing. And all the while, and, it, and that's the thing, like it even says, you end up not feeling anything. You think you're getting pleasure upon pleasure, and that's the sin. But in the end, you're actually not even getting pleasure itself. And it, it, it it's, it, and I think that's why we where we are in our world today, and in our, I think the church has often responded improperly to these things, where we thought, okay, it's kind of like ancient Israel. They said, oh, we're called not to worship idols, and worshiping idols leads us into uh, exile, so we're just going to get rid of, you know, everything. And they don't realize that didn't solve the problem. Idolatry was still there, even if you didn't have the stone or wooden statue. And I think the church has done that too with pleasures. They're like, oh, pleasures led us down to being heathen. So we're just going to get rid of everything that feels good. Like if you're not sitting on that hard wooden bench at camp meeting for at least three hours and like your legs have gone numb, then you can't experience holiness. And that is completely a joke. I love camp meeting, but continuing. Um, but like we, we no one can experience holiness without burlap sack underwear. Yes. <laughs> right, like there, you have to be in pain in yep. order to be holy. And we've, you know, we've done this thing, and then we've looked around and been like, kind of also tying in with with when Jesus admonishes the priest um, or the Pharisees in Matthew, and he says, "You've because of that, you've made people worse sinners." Um, than they were ever before they encountered the the good news. And it, it's just to realize that the path to hell, again, God is not prescribing the path to hell being wide. That is not how God created it to be, but describing. 
there are so many different ways to live mm. an evil life. Everything from the full spectrum of just being miserable and doing nothing to actually living a, a debaucherous life. And instead, what God calls us to is pleasures, but pleasures in right relatedness. And it is difficult because it can be easy to to slip either way. But there, there's something quite masterful about this saying. Uh, again, there's many roads to hell, but the, the better style is to get them uh, where they cannot feel anything. Yeah. So we'll be back. We're going to have some fun buy, sell, a hold after this. So thank you for spending time with us. Uh, it's an interesting conversation. Definitely check out the screw tape letters if you haven't. All right, coming back for our final segment. And again, this is Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. So we thank you for spending time with us. If you would like to help grow our program, grab a link to our content and share it with others. You can reach out to us at kingdomofthelogos at outlook.com, or you can look me up personally and email me at jeffdillonproctor at gmail.com. All right, so we're going to have buy, sell, a hold for our final conversation. Now, what we're going to do is I have 10 movie propositions. And they are movies which most of them are not going to be told from the perspective of the characters that we have specifically outlined in Scripture, but they're going to be about biblical events. So there's going to be some liberties taken and to flesh these out into to movies. Uh, so just have that on the front end. Um, but they are meant to kind of properly convey some of the morality there. And for practical purposes, and because I don't want to end up in hell over blasphemy, I'm going to exclude <laughs> the crucifixion of Christ in here as a horror movie. Um, because I think that is, 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 is far more serious um, than to take lightly the death of God. But that being said, we are going to look at 10 movie pitches I have for some potential Christian horror movies looking at different biblical stories. And so we're going to buy, sell, or hold these. If you would buy this, is this a good movie pitch? Or sell this, it's a bad movie pitch. You only get one hold per episode. And at the end, I'm going to let y'all pick out which one of these 10 would you like to be actually made? If we had the, the funds to actually make a movie, which one would we go through? So y'all feel pretty good about this? Yeah. yeah. We get it? Bring it down. All right. <laughs> y'all out there in the audience, y'all send me your thoughts too. All right. So number one on this, and they're in no particular order. The first movie pitch I have for you is a movie on the Gadarene village. So this is going to be about the story of the Gadarene demoniacs. You can look to the gospel according to Matthew chapter eight to find this. And this is going to be a monster horror movie where it's not just that the demoniacs are monsters, but so are the village, the townspeople there. Because if you remember in the biblical story, when Jesus comes and casts out the demons, they get very mad. They beg Jesus to leave. So this village here, they're a little bit uneasy. But this particular movie, instead of it following anybody in that town or anybody that travels with Jesus normally, this is going to follow a couple of Jewish teenagers who they've heard about this Messiah figure. But the movie really follows them. They stumble into this village expecting that the Messiah might come this way. And they find out that the village is just possessed by this mob of people that's kind of fine with these demoniacs living there. And you're not really sure where the demoniacs are. They're kind of these monsters that always are looming in the darkness. And you kind of have this insane town that's all right with it. And these young Jewish teens, they're kind of like wondering, is the Messiah real or is he not? What are these insane people doing? And they watch the microcosm of good and evil play out in this little village that kind of step into another world that's horrifying. So what do we think about that? A little bit of a teen monster movie. <laughs> that's, a, that's always a fun genre, kind of the classic 70s and 80s horror. We're always kind of teen-centered. So I like your, your uh, artistic liberties on that one. Uh, but also, yeah, I like the idea. It almost sounds kind of a, a Frankenstein 
meets hills have eyes twist yeah, that's, to it. That's what I was going for, actually. <laughs> so so um, I enjoy all these thoughts. I think this would make for actually a, a legitimately decent uh, full-length film. So I'm going to buy this. And and Jesus kind of comes in a little bit like Dr. Van Helsing at the end. So that, that's kind of how that would go, though. I'm not making that comparison in serious tones. That is just, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Pastor Mike? I'll buy uh, it's just, uh, you know, there's so much evil there that it makes a great horror film. And then, you know, there is uh, an amount of resolution to a certain extent that that good wins. But it's still, even in the, the biblical story, there's this whole element of, okay, so they went into the swine, they run off the cliff, but what? Mm. Yeah. You know, and so I think there's an element there that, that continues to make even for a sequel if they wanted to. <laughs> well, I, I will Franchise. say this. Yeah. Just to further articulate this, my, my vision for this is the Jewish teens would never really have a direct relationship with Jesus in the sense that they wouldn't actually meet him personally. They would hear, because as the story goes, you hear the swan herds come back and tell the story. So they never really get to see up close mm. that happened. They're, they're still trying to figure out, is he really the Messiah? And let it kind of end with that uncertainty. We know there's this cosmic battle between good and evil, and people can be totally insane mm-hmm. and made into monsters, but kind of leave you well, in the that whole hanging moment. there, you yeah. know, wanting Jesus to leave is something that, uh, you know, I think every good horror film needs to have that element where there's the obvious monster, and then there's this other that's kind of in the yeah. background that, you know, there's something of danger that's happening and trying to figure out where is the real evil source coming from. Sure, so I think sure. it makes, yeah. I'll buy All right, so number two on my list is from Mark 9. This is another possession movie. Um, They're not all possession movies, though. So in Mark chapter 9, you have the boy with an unclean spirit, and this is the father who says, I believe, help my unbelief. But I want this movie to be told from the perspective of the boy's family because obviously within that text, they have come to the disciples who have tried to cast out this demon, but they couldn't. And there's obviously a history of this possession of this child before. And I think the movie would be really following this family. They've got this son who is possessed. You've got this mother and and father who you don't hear about the mother in the story, but you've got this, this family with the possession. And they've tried to go out through ordinary means and civil means to have this demon exercised, and they really can't. And just sort of a, a supernatural thriller of what is the antidote to this? And, of course, the demon itself is unstable as it is in the, it portrays in the text. Like sometimes it wants to kill the boy, but it needs the boy alive because it's got to pilot the boy like it's some diabolical captain. Um, and so the demon itself is unstable and just trying to get help from the world around you and unable to do that. Mm. And then ultimately, again, kind of having that, that climax interaction with Jesus. So what do we think about that? Yeah, I think also, yeah, this would make a great film because you kind of already have your three acts told in the story mm-hmm. where you do you think you're about to get to the resolution when the father comes to the disciples but you think things are good you think things have been fixed and then all of a sudden you realize they weren't actually able to heal them so you you could have a really uh movie wise i'm thinking like you know with a two-hour film you could have a very intricate storyline going on um for the family kind of to be struggling through and then, of course, you have kind of the twist where you don't where this boy isn't actually healed and you have to find ultimately you have to find Jesus. And so, um, yeah, again, this would make a great full length film. So I'm going to buy and it. And see, you know, I think you just gave us the title for it. You could call it Finding Jesus, <laughs> which bring a lot of people to the movie theater who would not know what to do. <laughs> you thought you were here for a feel good film. Uh, no. And no. Yeah. Act one is a 
people just hopeless possession. Then act two is like the thought the disciples are helping and then not. And then finally you get the third act with Jesus. Yet, yeah. um, Master Mike. I'm going to buy, you know, I think there's a great climax in there where the father says, Lord, help my, my belief, help my faith, um, help me there. And, uh, not only that, but there's this whole place where they, they think he's dead. And then, of course, you know, Jesus says never to enter him again. Yeah. I think it leads uh, leads us with where did this demonic, uh, you know, uh, entity go? And so, yeah, I'll buy. Yeah. All right. So the third movie that I've got here is one on the plagues of Egypt. Now, this is going to be told from the perspective of an Israelite slave who is in an Egyptian household. And like a single Israelite slave, they're the only one in this Egyptian household. So there's someone who's kind of cut off a little bit from the rest mm. of, they don't know Moses personally. They don't really know what's going on between Moses and Pharaoh, but they're seeing all of these plagues unfold in the world around them. And they're seeing this cosmic battle between Pharaoh, who thinks he's God, and the God of all creation, who even for the Hebrews at this time, they know something about, he had some sort of covenant with Abraham. What does that look like? Who knows? Um, but somebody who's kind of on the outskirts of Jewish civilization, who is a slave, and they're watching all this stuff unfold in the plagues of Egypt. And this is more of a, a psychological thriller told from someone who doesn't fully understand exactly what's going on, but they're watching kind of on the outskirts. All of this real just crazy stuff happen around them. So that's the, the third pitch I've got for you. Yeah, I, li I like it. It's like a disaster movie meets psychological thriller. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So um, I, I think... Um, and it'd also be interesting, especially like not just the, the, the uh, Israelite slave, but even within the Egyptian household yeah. that they're facing, they may be getting a counter narrative where you think um, the, you know, Moses is the, the source of evil. And you do have a lot of horror movies that do that where like the good guys think they're fighting uh, the evil entity and they end up killing the thing or preventing the thing that was stopping the ultimate horror. So you've got, I think some, you could, you could play around with some really cool twists in it. All right, Pastor Mike. I, you know, I'm going to buy. I think it makes a really good uh, Christian horror film because I think if we really understand the context, of what's going on there, it's really the Egyptians' gods in battle with uh, um, the Israelite god Yahweh, whom they really don't even know at this point in time. They're still Hebrew slaves, but as as they face these battles and they see how uh, these plagues come upon them and how they are spared and how uh, God, I think it really places us in a context of seeing, you know, we have our own, um, you know, areas in life where we're struggling in, and yet there's so many gods that are all that the, that the world has all around us with little G's, but we serve a God with a big G, and yeah. uh, how how God delivers us. So yeah, I, I, I think I'll buy. All righty, and number four on this list is the story of Eglon and Ehud. Now this is from uh, Judges chapter three. And this is going to be a mystery thriller. And the short version of the story is the people, they're, they're kind of subjugated by the Moabite king, Eglon. And Ehud, who is a left-handed man, he goes in to pay tribute to the king. But he tells the king, you know, i got to tell you this secret. So can I be alone with you for a second? And they, they shut the doors. And um, he pulls out a sword and he stabs it into Eglon, who is a, a big man. And the sword goes up in him and the, the fat overcloses the sword and then Ehud, he slips out and he shuts the doors and, you know, after a long while, after the, the 
guards are embarrassed. They open up and they find that the king is dead. Uh, I think you could do an interesting, and this is a total different genre of movie than what we've <laughs> talked about so far, but kind of a mystery thriller of of someone trying to penetrate their King Ehud's, um, Eglon's fortress and then go in there and kill him, but then also the mystery of what's going on. And I think you could actually tell this from the perspective of one of King Eglon's guards and mm. have that be the main character trying to figure out what's going on where you kind of have a little bit of, you know, some... A Poirot Yeah, a little bit of Poirot going on because you have like some massive international like subplot going on and it's like happened under your nose and trying to figure that out. <laughs> so a mystery thriller from that range. So what do y'all think about that? I would buy, I, I buy that idea, I do, but this one, this story would also make like a really good gross out horror. Yes. Yeah, you could. do have a lot of like those gross details cheesy uh, horror films where like people get cut, their arm gets cut off, and like more blood sprays out than it is ever humanly possible. Like the, you have some elements in the story that would be very uh, campy and funny in, in a gross way. <laughs> yeah. If the right amount of self-awareness might be made yeah. might be required for this to be it a good movie it could go really bad or really good but I still buy the idea <laughs> yeah I, I, you know I'll buy but uh, maybe for as you said it went kind of in a in a really gross uh, and I, I think it really might even have a, an element of comedy that's what it was original uh, I don't think necessarily funny funny but people would have understood you know all the context of what went on there uh, and, it, and it does it has an element of of uh, belittling your your you know oppressors to mm. a certain degree there, and, and how intelligent uh, you know Ahud is is to come in and, and King Eglon has been basically deceived uh, so easily. Yeah. Uh, and but yeah, I think there's uh, I'll buy I'll buy at the end of the day. And and it's a great story. If you haven't yeah. checked it out, it's a very brief episode there in the Book of Judges. <laughs> Check out Eglon and Ahud. It's very fascinating. All right. So number five, this one might. Have seemed obvious in this, but the story of David Goliath, where Goliath is portrayed just as your monster, mm-hmm. like it's it's a monster movie where Goliath is portrayed as the monster which people perceived him to be, and they actually tell this from the perspective of Jonathan, mm-hmm. who they they've kind of had this arc like, what do we do with this monster that's plaguing us? And eventually, um, obviously, David comes out. But what do we think about this? Yeah, I think it'd be good. I don't have much commentary on it, but I'll buy it. <laughs> Yeah, I'll buy. And, you know, I think there's something about giants that that are spookous. And, uh, you know, I, I think um, th- there are many giants. I know we can take uh, uh, Look in the Past, Facing the Giants, that's one. And I know that's not a horror movie, but uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot of Christian um, usage in that, I guess. And so, yeah, I'll buy. Okay. Uh, the next one is... A little bit more uh, New Testament-y. Uh, this is Paul's exorcism of the girl possessed by a demon. And to, this is Acts chapter 16, where okay. you find there's a girl possessed by a demon, and she's a slave girl, and her owners are using her for the purposes of divination, and they kind of have a business structure around this girl possessed by a demon. And the style of this film is going to be more like an old hammer horror film. And mm-hmm. if you haven't seen them, they, they have no problem being cliche, but they're kind of an action plot that doesn't mind being cliche. So this isn't sort of your psychological supernatural thriller where you don't know what's going on. Like it is spying telling you, you've got Paul and you've got Paul's crew and they're out here, they're casting out demons. It's kind of one of their their side jobs, almost a hobby even. <laughs> it's just one of the many tasks that they do in the course of their ministry and kind of an, an action uh, movie that has a little bit of some uh, supernatural spooky themes in there and it doesn't mind being cliche kind of like the old hammer horror films and it's actually told from the perspective of Paul and sort of his crew that goes along um, so what do we think about that 
I think this would be excellent. And I think I've not seen many or really any of the, except for in clips, the, the Hammer Horror films. But I think you mentioned like sometimes the movie just ends. There's yep. not really just, a good conclusion. Over. And I think if you were to do that, to go all the way, you should end your, the film with Paul and Silas going to jail. Like, don't give any resolution. <laughs> they go to jail. Just, just they get, they the mob comes after the girl is, is saved from demon possession. Like, you, you think the happy ending of the girl being saved, it, that's the, your ending, but actually it turns and the mob comes and arrests Paul and Silas and then cut to black, credits roll. Um, I think that would be fantastic. I'll buy yeah, it. Yeah, you know, that's not why I envisioned an ending. I did envision <laughs> it having like a cutoff ending, but I like that. That's that's very much hammer for you because it like changes tone suddenly and like it's over. Um, I could buy that. Yeah, I like that. You know, I'll buy this one too. I think I, I have seen a lot of the uh, hammer horror films. I don't know a lot of the background, but I would think it'd be in, it would be difficult for me to believe that they were not um, inspired by biblical themes uh, as you watch these movies. Um, there's all kind of implications there that they've gathered knowledge from that and applied it in a, in a way that really uh, makes a good movie. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I, I'll buy it. So to put that in a more serious um, modern thing, kind of like a lower budget Indiana Jones film where it's it's got some supernatural themes, but it's kind of an action movie. You know, he's a professor, but he also deals with you know, people getting their hearts ripped out and turned into stone on the side and things of that nature. Like you've got the Apostle Paul. He does what he does as a minister of the gospel. But, you know, I got to deal with this demon. Um, and there's a mob out here like I'm dealing with a monster today, but tomorrow it might be something more academic. Um, you, you've kind of got that action feel to it, but some real spooky themes clipped in there. And it doesn't mind being cliche like, yeah, it's a demon. OK, deal with it. <laughs> Um, I, I like how Pastor Amanda just says, you know, it just kind of ends yep. open, open-ended right there. It doesn't have a really good closure, but you just, nope. just leave it Over. like that. Yeah, Over. Just, yeah. yeah. All right. So the next one is a psychological thriller from the perspective of Job. And it's the story of Job. You probably could have guessed this one would be on the list, too, where you've got all this stuff. And which in the book of Job, he's never made aware that I'm, I, I know of any indication that he even knows that the accuser is is having this battle with God. But... Uh, to take this this story and the idea where you don't really know why all this stuff's happening, but have some liberties in the story to kind of give some some vibes out there that you can feel something diabolical is work, mm. even though it's never fully seen, but kind of a psychological thriller from the perspective of Job. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Like, why wouldn't God just be like, okay, all this happened because I allowed the accuser to allow these things to happen to you. But God, when Job confronts God, God basically just says, like, gird your loins. Who are you to contend with me? Yeah. Uh, it's, there, there is no resolution, really, yeah. for in the perspective of Job. You just have all these, like, haunting-esque things happen to your family and your home and, and everything. And then all of a sudden things get better. Um, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I think that would make a... a it would have to be done well because I think this would be an easy story for people to like fall into some overused uh, Christian movie tropes. But I think this could it could be quite the fascinating psychological thriller. Yeah, and and that's the avenue of it, a psychological thriller, where there is a lot of calamity to the point where you're driven a little bit insane. So, mm. um, Pastor Mike, your thought on this? Yeah, yeah, I'll buy. I, I think you know for all all of us in this room right here, are pastors, but uh, you know we're. You know, God gets blamed for a lot of things God doesn't do. <laughs> and and we see the story of Job often played out over and over again in, in uh, pastoral ministry. So God is on the throne, um, and, uh, you know, bad things happen to good people good people and so but god is even to those who are living right rightly related 
uh, just as we see in the story of Job. But it, it does, you know, deal with the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, but God is on the throne, and to see that and, and know that is, is very powerful. All right, and the next one that we have is also a psychological thriller. And I know we always think lewdly when we think of these two, but the fall of Adam and Eve. Mm. And to do this, if you saw the movie, oh, what was it, like the 10,000 BC or whatever it was, where they don't actually speak in English, there's a little bit of like communication that goes on between people, but it's not an out and right movie where there's a lot of talking. I think you could do an interesting psychological thriller with the story of Adam and Eve where you do have the serpent, which kind of looms over everything in the darkness. And really to play up the true nature of the serpent is this supernatural monster, which is much more when it does speak in its rare moments and when it does suggest things, maybe you don't have it talk at all, but it's obviously a very astute, a very intellectual and very capable monster, even though it barely is perceptible as it looms in the shadows coming out to to really prey on Adam and Eve, looking for mm-hmm. that that moment where it could have power over them and ultimately drag them down to the fall, which of course this has a bad ending, this, this yeah. story does. Um, but I think you could make an interesting thriller movie and really take this. I mean, you, you got like two choices for who this is from the perspective of. Is it from the perspective of Eve or Adam? Um, but really from, from their perspective, most likely from Eve, since she, she does more converse, conversing there in the, the biblical text. But really the story of, of Eve is a psychological thriller. Yeah, and this this kind of also calls back to some classic, um, the, the book The Haunting of Hill House, which was turned into a very fin- well-done uh, series through Netflix. Um, but yeah, most of the book and even that series really plays with the idea of like, is there really a haunting or is this just crazy people psychologically like just going insane? And it really kind of plays up those dynamics. And you kind of have Adam being the silent partner uh, throughout the story of the, the fall where he really doesn't, he's kind of implied that he's there, but he really doesn't really do anything. Yeah. And so you, you do have, if it's from Eve's perspective, you also kind of have Adam being there in the sense of like, is she crazy or is there actually a monster? Like what what's happening? I think you could do some fun stuff with that story. And it, to your point there, and the reason why I brought up the 10,000 BC thing, because you kind of talk about the silent posh, uh, partner there where you don't actually have a lot of con- conversation and deliberate communication between Adam and Eve. They're kind of portrayed as innocent children. And you've got this serpent who is like fully conscious of what, what he's doing, but also almost imperceptible. He's so faint. Like you, you can tell that he's there and something is looming, but but with the sort of mystique to it that I think would set the atmosphere. Pastor Mike, your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, I think there's one uh, element that we could bring in there. We could take that from an, an angel's perspective there and, and look at a little bit more of a spiritual warfare battle that's going on. And so, yeah, I'm going to buy uh, but yeah, you know, I know we talk about you could go from Adam and Eve or, or Eve's perspective, but I think there's a whole uh, possibility of, of spiritual warfare going on right there to try to uh, manipulate and, and deceive, you know, all of creation. Okay. And we're almost done with this list. We got uh, two more entries. <laughs> um, so number nine is actually going to be an anthology. So if you've seen out there, a lot of the old Vincent Price movies, they're like three different little stories that come together to make up one feature film. They're all about 30 minutes long or something like that. Well, this would be an anthology series of the book of Daniel, and it would be three shorts. And the first of which would be Nebuchadnezzar's dream there in Daniel chapter four. Um, And this would be a psychological thriller 
from the perspective of Daniel as he kind of watches Nebuchadnezzar go through all of this and ultimately be driven mad. So that would be the mm -hmm. first story there. The second story would also be a more psychological horror and this would be Daniel chapter 5 with Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. And this would be told from the perspective of somebody who's in the palace, who is kind of a mid-range servant. There's someone who has access to some of the more inner parts of the palace, but they're not somebody who's like a party guest or something like that. And they hear all these rumors about this. They're not really sure if there was actually a handwriting on the wall or if <laughs> Belshazzar is just insane. And you've kind of got this stuff looming around and trying to really sort out what's going on. And you kind of see Daniel come in and give some resolution there in the end. But again, this would be a short, about 30 minutes long. And the last one would be a little bit different tone than the other three. And I know these kind of go out of order of the book. But this would be a supernatural monster story uh, with the golden statue in Daniel 3. And you would take this and let, actually let the golden statue be the monster in the movie, even though it's, it's a statue, so it doesn't move. Mm. But let the statue have this strange supernatural ability to make people insane and deranged. And tell this from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are trying to navigate and survive this whole incident with the golden statue that's out there. It has this supernatural possessive power over people and it's kind of this lifeless monster. And, you know, is it really the source of their insanity or is it their, their selves? Mm. You know, how much power does Nebuchadnezzar have and what's the deal with the statue? And that be the final of this anthology series. And that's my whole pitch here. So an anthology series, each of them being shorts. Again, so they're not full, well-developed stories like you would find others, but just sort of little 30-minute episodes standalone from Daniel. Well, that third one kind of sounds like Annabelle or any kind of like haunted doll story. Yeah, that, that's what I'm going for, that yeah. a haunted thing. I like them. I, I think you could do full length. Um, maybe not full length with the first two, but you could definitely do a full length one with the last one. Um, but either way, it would be quite interesting. And maybe making them shorter it would keep them more open-ended and a little bit spookier so yeah i'll buy it mike i'm, I'm going to buy I, as a child i watched uh, the three stooges and i'm, I'm not going to tell anyone to get their theology from the three <laughs> stooges but uh you know they took uh, a lot of these uh biblical stories and i know the, the handwriting on the wall was one of them uh, and there was an element uh, of course these are comedy and they're short they're very you know they're not very long uh, but there's an element there that that they're dealing with uh, the spookiness there. So yeah, I'll buy that. Um, it can be done, be done tastefully. Alrighty, and the last entry I have on this list, and I know we're over time. <laughs> the last entry on this list is the story of Esther. But the way that this is done is Haman is obviously the villain, or Haman, however you want to pronounce him. Haman, who is the villain, he is portrayed as both a charming kind of villain. But he also has this hint of wicked possession that only Esther and Mordecai are able to detect. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of somebody who has this kind of slick um, charm that he pulls over people as something where Haman is between a murderous psychopath or perhaps something more demonic. And this whole movie is told from the story of Esther as sort of a psychological adventure where she's trying to wrap her head around who or what Haman actually is, while she's also trying to navigate the real-world effects that Haman has on the world around her. So you've got a couple of layers of plot. She's trying to figure out who is Haman, what is he really doing. Obviously, Mordecai sees something in him, and I can see that too, and it's having a real-world effect. You know, is this something more cosmic? Is this just a, a psychopath? And she's navigating that while also navigating the politics necessary to stop him and sort of a psychological action adventure trying to figure out what exactly is going on and then how so how do I apply my understanding of that to the world around me.
I like it. It's kind of got a rear window feel. Um, the a- Alfred Hitchcock film where yeah. like uh, he the 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 guy knows that something's going on, but nobody else will believe him. Yeah, and he's yeah. trying to navigate like how to actually. And then he even doubts himself whether evils are actually taking place. So you could have kind of a slow burn horror film going yeah. on with this one. I, I like it. I'll buy it. Which would be a totally different <laughs> take Genre. on Esther than normally these yeah. movies are. Um, it, believe it or not, Esther's more than just a romance story. But anyways, we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> Pastor Mike? I'm going to buy, you know, I think uh, there there is, as much as you talked about the possession and uh, exercising of, of evil spirits, there is in this uh, story of Esther a desire and for possession of power and authority and abuse of that that we see uh, with, with Haman uh, or Haman, however you want to say that. But nonetheless, it is... It is definitely some evil to be dealt with, and I, I, yeah, I'll buy that. All righty. So what of these 10? Yeah, I know mm. number nine is an anthology, but whatever. Uh, what of these 10 would you like to actually see made into a movie if we could do any of them? Do we have a, a preference there? I think I like the Mark 9 with the boy being possessed because I think some of these are short where if you were to make them into films, a lot of people would add weird stuff to it. But, and you'd have to add some stuff to make it like a full-length film. But I think Mark 9 already presents itself to be a great story arc um, that would, could be entertaining to watch. Um, but and still kind of have a, a really great message without being quote-unquote preachy. So I think that one's my favorite to pick if we were to make a movie. Dad? I'm going to go with uh, the, the Exodus um, plagues. I think, you know, f- for me... Personally, the Seder meal where we actually look at the plagues is is something that we've really, I, I enjoy it, um, but at times I, I'm concerned about we've taken away a little bit of the seriousness that we need to. So I think a, uh, a movie that would examine that and the horrors that, that were going on, I, I think that would be good. And... I'm going to break my own rules over here and give two. I would really like to see the whole <laughs> Paul exorcism done in mm. the style of a Hammer horror film. I that would love would that. Good. That would be phenomenal. But if I had to choose any of them, I think it would be the Gadarene Demoniacs. That story. Yeah. And you have these people who kind of stumble in to this village of insanity where there's real evil, but then there's also some just crazy insanity that's possessing everyone. And they there's this hint of the Messiah, and it kind of leaves you as an onlooker, like what's going on in this place? And also... Who is God and how does he relate to this stuff? And what is the Messiah and what does that mean for me? Um, kind of just some some young people who are kind of already questioning the world anyway, but stepping into that and seeing that supernatural battle unfold. All right, so we've got to wrap up our program. We are <laughs> right at the end. We hope that you enjoyed our list of 10 movie propositions. Uh, final thoughts going around? Just random things. Um, I know the movies theaters here in Nashville are closing down again, and it's just sad. And that... I get, like, they have to because they're just not getting enough business, but it, it just, um, and I miss also, like, even the, um, like, live theaters haven't been open since COVID started, so usually around Christmas time, Justin and I would go see, like, the Nutcracker Ballet or go watch a play around my birthday, and it just can't happen this year, and I think a lot of people are just missing those social interactions where even though you may not be talking to everyone all the time, but just enjoying, like, a group activity, and so hopefully... Uh, we can get things under control or whoever, I don't know, we, I don't know who we is, but <laughs> things can get under control where where life can get a little bit back more to, we don't have to be in this new normal anymore. We can actually yeah. be back to normal. Pastor Mike? Yeah, just kind of a, a you know, 
riding on her coattails. This seems like one of the best um, length of falls we've had. Seems like in this Tennessee weather for years, it's gone straight from summer really right into winter. And and if we've had two or three days of fall, it was you know it was short lived. But it seems like for the last couple of weeks, it's just been beautiful. The leaves are starting to to change colors. But you know this constant. Um, cycle that we've run through in life that God holds all things together and change is not always easy for us but there's something that for me and maybe I've been you know I'm, I'm older in life but to see these changes uh, these weather uh, situations change like this and there be some type of constant to it uh, I know it just seems like we're having all kinds of hurricanes and all kinds of devastating stuff but here in Tennessee the the, the leaves are changing the weather's cool um, it just feels good, and um, th- there's an element of that that just brings good hope and joy to me. Mm. All right, my final thought for it is, is a bit of a prayer request, too. You know, one of the things that worries me is there's a lot of alligators in the yard right now. I know the main prevailing narrative is everything has to bow down before the coronavirus, but one of the things that bothers me is is that a lot of our older folks have been cut off from the world, and things like abuse and neglect in the nursing homes and and people who live alone that's a real problem and i can only suspect that it has only been exacerbated in this time and there's very little things to hold these these events accountable so that's something just as a prayer request make sure we pray for those who are alone um and also find ways to to break this stuff down like don't bow down to the golden statue that nebuchadnezzar says um the holy scriptures obviously don't mean follow every every law if that law is in contradiction with the commandments of god and honoring your father and mother is a commandment of god and we need to just say no to a lot of stuff and say you know what we're going to go honor our father and mother um deal with it so that's my final thought thank you for joining us we hope you've enjoyed this program god love you and have a blessed day